Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This week on Q&A, Heather McGee, president of Demos. In August of 2016, she was a guest on C-SPAN's Washington Journal program, and she received a call from Gary Civitello, a white man from North Carolina. Mr. Civitello said that he's prejudiced and asked Ms. McGee what he could do to become a better person. Heather McGee talks about the interaction, her subsequent friendship with Mr. Civitello, and what he has done to change his views. Heather McGee, what is Demos? Demos is a public policy organization that is dedicated to the idea that in America we should all have an equal say in our democracy and an equal chance in our economy. And something that we've been thinking a lot about lately is actually the root of our name. Demos is the Greek word for the people, which is the root word of democracy. And right now in this country, it feels like figuring out who exactly belongs in our demos, in the people of our nation, is this nation's highest calling. I woke up on December the 10th, 2016, picked up the New York Times in their opinion section, saw the headline, I'm prejudiced, he said. Then we kept talking. Mm. And I want to show you the video because it started here at C-SPAN sometime before that and then ask you to explain the whole thing. Yeah, good morning. Um, I was hoping that your guest can help me change my mind about some things. Um, I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. And the reason it is is something I wasn't taught, but it's kind of something that I learned. Um, When I open up the papers, I get very discouraged at what young black males are doing to each other and the, the crime rate. I understand that they live in an environment with a lot of drugs. You have to get money for drugs, and, and, it, and it's a deep issue that goes beyond that. But when you, I have these different fears, and I don't want my fears to come true, you know, so I try to avoid that, and I and I come off as being prejudice, but I just have fears. I don't like to be forced to like people. I like to be led to like people through example. And what can I do to change, you know, to be a better American? Heather McKee. Thank you so much for being honest um, and for opening up this conversation, because it's simply one of the most important ones we have to have in this country. You said more, but I'll let you tell us what happened after that. 
That was a remarkable moment. I didn't really realize uh, until I kind of stepped off the set um, because there were more calls after that, right? We just had to keep rolling. Um, how powerful it was. There was something in his voice that touched me. I mean, you can hear it. It's so authentic as he searches for the words to say something to a national audience that most of us won't admit in our homes. I'm prejudiced. Um, and the way he ended his question saying, what can I do to change and be a better American? Just reached right in and grabbed my heart. I had to kind of just pause and it felt like the set sort of fell away and I was trying to communicate with this person who really reached a hand out to me. I mean, yes, he said things that, you know, as the, um, uh, you know, sister of a black man and the daughter of a black man, uh, uh, you know, were painful to hear. And I knew there was many more layers of stereotype against black men underneath even just what he said. But at the same time, I know that we're all swimming in, swimming in a sea of racist stereotypes and uh, that the media overrepresents black crime um, and that it's become the sort of aim of a lot of politicians actually to make uh, people distrust one another and particularly distrust people of color. So could I really blame him for absorbing that, particularly when he was asking for a way to change? I kind of just had to thank him. What happened next? So, you know, I, I work in law and public policy. You know, I before that call, I'd been talking about uh, student loans and economic inequality and trade policy. And yes, I've been talking a little bit about race relations, and I do, but as an instrument to talking about public policy. But I could tell that Gary from North Carolina, as I knew him then, really wanted kind of really simple answers to his questions about kind of how he could sort of integrate his life. So... Off the top of my head, I said, you know, get to know black families. And um, if you're a religious person, join an interracial church, right? The idea of sort of joining in with people of different races uh, with a higher purpose, with some kind of higher common purpose. I did tell him to turn off the nightly news because we know um, that there's a really warped kind of vision of, of who uh, commits crimes in this country. Um, that comes uh, in many media markets. Um, and I asked him to read about black history. I got a sense that who he was really talking about was, you know, black people. I could have, of course, talked about stereotypes against immigrants and Muslims, but it felt like um, with his question, he was really asking me as a black woman on his television uh, to tell him sort of how to overcome his prejudice against black people. And then what? And then, you know, I kept kept going with the program. It was a great program. And I walked off the set and I had a text message from um, my colleague Gwen in my communications office. And she had watched it. She was there with um, uh, another one of my colleagues. She's a, a w young white woman from the South. He's a young African-American man from uh, the South as well. And they had sort of looked at each other with tears in their eyes and they said something really special just happened. And uh, a few days later, they put it on Facebook. It was on the weekend. It was on Saturday. They put it on Facebook, just the clip of Gary's question and then my full answer. And by Monday, it had about a million views. And that had never happened to Demos before. Um, and a bunch of different other sites and video kind of aggregators picked it up and put different headings on it. And it became the sort of racist C-SPAN caller, you know, asks this black woman a question and here's her response. Uh, and it really went viral. I mean, you had comedians and, uh, you know, sort of public figures talking about it. Um, 
you know, Demos is an organization that works in public policy. The people who follow us online are, you know, wonks and nerds or people who really care about the specific issues we work on, like debt-free college or raising the minimum wage or democracy reform. But this was getting out there. You know, my, like, sister-in-law's hairdresser uh, said, I, I saw this, you know. It was starting to really break out of the bubble. And I think part of the reason for that is that you have to remember this was August. Um, you know, we'd had this sort of racially charged summer with Donald Trump's campaign with Black Lives Matter and the police shootings and then the, you know, tragic events all in Baton Rouge and Dallas. I mean, it was really a time when people felt like all they were seeing on TV about race was bad news. And here was first a white man admitting that he was prejudiced, which for people of color was, you know, we kind of just all said, finally. I mean, you had Donald Trump saying that, you know, Mexican immigrants are rapists and then saying, I don't have a prejudiced bone in my body. And here was this sort of everyday guy being willing to have the courage and say, yeah, I have these prejudices. And we found this video on your website and I want to run a little bit of it and tell us how this happened. I went down to North Carolina and I met with Gary and we furthered that conversation about race and asked each other hard questions and it was amazing. I said this is somebody else I could talk to again and here we are, we're talking again. When you get to know people, you're usually your fears were unjustified. Don't let it go by. If you've got eight million people responding positively to my insecurities. They must be having the same thing. Yeah. It's just something that is, is we don't practice. And taking that first step is the hardest thing. How did you find Gary? Well, Gary found me. So Gary, so uh, as I now know, um, Gary, a few days later, was watching TV. He was watching CNN. And I went on CNN Headline News and had a little interview about the fact that this clip had gone viral, right? At this point, it had reached 8 million views. And so he saw, he heard my voice again. He had never seen or heard me before the C-SPAN show. So he heard my voice again, and he sort of ran into the uh, living room and saw me talking about the clip. And then at the bottom, it said, my Twitter handle. So then Gary went to his computer and got on Twitter for the first time in his life. His first tweet said, how does this thing work? And he found me, you know, he entered in my uh, Twitter handle and he said, I'm, I'm Gary from North Carolina. And I immediately, I, I wanted to know, you know, I mean, the way those shows work, I gave my answer and then we went on to a next, another call. And so I didn't know how it landed with him. I didn't know if he brushed it off. I didn't know anything about who he was. And there was really sort of no way to know. Um, so he found me. Uh, he said, I'm Gary from North Carolina. And then I sent him a direct private message. And I said, Gary, you know, I'm really glad you got in touch. I'd love to talk to you about what you thought about my answer to your question. So I gave him my phone number. And a few days later, uh, I got a phone call. And he was sitting at a burger joint having having a lunch break, and he decided to call me. He was very nervous. I was very nervous. But he said, you know, what you said changed my life. And I, to which I was shocked. I mean, I thought, sure. When asked a pretty hard question uh, at the top of my head, I gave some decent answers, but I didn't think that it was going to be something that he would take so seriously. 
And um, he explained to me that he's now on a path. Um, he wanted to get right about this before he died. He said he was um, inspired by the fact that, you know, his newspapers across the country and, and, you know, obviously it went viral in social media, but it also was picked up, you know, in, in the normal press. And he was inspired by that. He said, you know, there are probably a lot of other people like me out there who have these fears and prejudices and that's and are, are, are worried about what is going to happen to them if they admit it, but also know that they can't actually change unless they admit it. When did you go down there and why? So we had a couple of phone conversations. The first one was so good. He thanked me. I thanked him for his courage. He said, um, uh, you know, some version of actually what he said in that video. He said, you know, I don't know what you want to do with this, but this seems like a, a big thing. And if you're willing to, to, to keep talking about this, he said, I'm willing to talk with you about it. I'm, you know, sort of use me to keep this conversation going because the country needs it. And um, so I kind of took that to heart. I didn't, I didn't know exactly what would come of it, um, but I had a, um, and then I got married actually, and then, and then my life kind of went, aw I went away from my work for a while, and I got married. I talked to Gary once more when I was getting ready for my wedding. He told me about the books he was reading. Um, I, I gave him some ideas. Um, he told me a funny story about having a. Uh, gone to the bookstore to get a bunch of, you know, African-American studies books. He sent me a little video of himself and then, you know, the, the sort of heading for the African-American studies uh, section of the bookstore to tell me he was in the bookstore. Um, and then I got an invitation to go speak at Wake Forest University in North Carolina uh, with Melissa Harris-Perry. Uh, and so my, my new husband and I said, well, let's, let's call Gary and see if we could drive by and meet with him. And um, so we did that. And Gary and I, I think, were both very nervous to meet each other. We had no idea what would happen. Um, my husband is a documentary filmmaker. And so I said, Gary, you know, I think we should probably record us meeting. And he said, yeah, absolutely. So um, that footage you saw is from, from my husband. And it was a really beautiful conversation, the first one in person. It really kind of um, exceeded my expectations. Where is that? So that uh, he lives outside of Asheville, North Carolina. So he wanted uh, he wanted us to meet in Asheville. So we met. Um, it's actually in sort of a park outside of a hotel in downtown Asheville, one of the highest points. It was a beautiful fall day. The changing leaves. Um, it was about a week before the election, and we didn't talk about the election much. We didn't talk about politics. He told me about uh, his life. You know, we just got to know each other, where he's from, the experiences he's had in life. Let me hold you there for a second. How old is the man? Uh, I think he's mid-50s. Um, where is he from? Uh, he was born in Connecticut, actually, in New Haven, Connecticut. And he, um, but he was in the, uh, in the Navy and had a heart condition and went down to Asheville uh, in his early 20s for, um, for heart surgery at the VA down there. And had in his life in Connecticut, um, this is one of those sort of beautiful things that happens in American people's stories where um, really the same things that he was afraid of uh, from the sort of media stereotypes about uh, African Americans had been part of his experiences growing up in Connecticut with uh, gangs and drug addiction. And he, when he got his 
uh, heart surgery, uh, he stayed in Asheville and kind of fell in love with it down there and the sort of slow pace of life and has been living there since then. He was an HVAC uh, electrician operator, and now I think he's mostly retired. Has he been married? No. So he has no children. Mm -mm. And how often in your life have you heard... Uh, this is, you can't quantify it, but how often have you heard the kind of things that he was saying about what he as a white man thought mm -hmm. about black people? I mean, it is a pretty innumerable account. Um, it feels like, in terms of someone saying that to me personally, um, probably not so many times. Um, I, in my career really started uh, out as an economic policy person and um, would go across the country in my role at Demos and in other, uh, in other jobs talking to groups of people about the economy. And oftentimes, you know, just in church basements or Grange halls, union halls, talking about sort of what had happened in our economy over the past couple generations so that working people were finding it so hard to get ahead. And I could tell that story without talking about race at all. Right. I could tell, talk about globalization and technological change, about uh, corporate power in Washington and trade rules and tax rules and workers' rights. But I felt that if I didn't mention race, I was not telling the whole story. Some piece of the puzzle was really missing about how it was that, you know, my grandfather's generation, uh, you could have just had a kind of working class job, didn't have to go to college, and you had a great job with benefits, retirement security, um, and, you know, public schools were well funded, you could go to college debt free, and that something changed in the late 1970s. And yes, there are lots of reasons for why that changed, but something also shifted in our politics to where the very idea of, um, you know, a government that invests in its people and supports uh, working class folks and supports investments in mobility has become tarred and, in fact, racialized so that the sort of conservative argument against government was very much kind of carried on these stereotypes of undeserving people of color who would actually benefit from government. And so it felt to me like I was getting drawn into more and more conversations about race, even when I was supposed to be talking to a, you know, white laid off steel worker about the economy. Um, and I sort of learned a way to talk about race with white people that allowed them to see their self-interest in it, their story in it. Go back in your own life and tell us where you were born. Sure. I was born in Chicago, born and raised on the south side of Chicago. Parents um, did what? My mother uh, was, at the time that I was born, she was a, a holistic health practitioner on the south side of Chicago and then actually ended up moving into working into more uh, social policy. Um, so I kind of come by rightly. My father was an artist and a photographer and a graphic designer. Were they together? They were together. They got divorced when I was young, but I, you know, lived between both of them, had a great, great great community that I grew up in, the south side of Chicago, sort of the Michelle Obama south side now that people know it that way. Um, really thick black community. My grandparents on both sides had come up from the south and worked in the public sector as a cop and a social worker. And um, it was a really great way to grow up. How many white people were in your high school? 
That is a great question. Um, so I actually grew up uh, in mostly, mostly all black schools until I went away to boarding school. And this was a decision my mom made um, when I was in seventh grade, which is pretty early. So I went from uh, growing up in Chicago to um, virtually all white rural New England school. What school? Uh, it's called Bement. It's a very small school uh, in Western Massachusetts, and I was one of, I think, two black children in the whole school. And that was a pretty, uh, pretty phenomenal adjustment. Uh, I was young. I was eleven. I was I was young for even for seventh grade. And but in some ways, I think being that young kind of helped. It helped me still be a child and and um, have a sense of adventure about this incredible cultural shift that I had just experienced. Um, and so in my high school that I went on to, um, it was a diverse but very elite uh, prep school. And most of the kids of color were ones who came in on scholarships. Um, Where was that? That was Milton Academy outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And how were you treated when you were 11 years old by the yeah. white girls yeah it was hard I mean we were kids you know so um, in some ways we were just young enough to have a little bit of that sort of childhood innocence and some of the kind of harsher uh, kind of status concerns that come in high school we were before that I was 11 years old but there were a lot of moments where they just didn't understand kind of um, some of the basic things about being black and young like I you know went from living with my family to living with all white people, with all white uh, dorm parents and, and, and uh, fellow students. And so little, little things about just the way I'd grown up that was different than the way they grew up came about. Um, but I developed wonderful friends, uh, wonderful friends. Uh, I flourished in the school. It was, you know, also going from a big public school to a tiny school where you sat around in a kind of library room with, you know, five teachers and a book. I mean, it was uh, in many ways, I mean, sorry, five students and a book and a teacher. And um, it was in many ways a very, um, I was very fortunate. Were your parents wealthy? No, but they were able to um, use financial aid, and it was um, it was a big it was a big leap that my parents made to say I wasn't getting the challenge I needed in public school. And um, well, one of the things that people noticed when you answered Gary in the Colin show is uh, there was not an ounce of anger in your voice. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when did you learn how to do that? <laughs> and were you ever angry about race? Oh, yeah. I'm angry about race every day. Um, but I mean in the way you treat other... When people are yeah. not nice to you, uh, yeah. in the way you treat other people, how do you get this even temper about you? I went to the Obama School of Race Relations. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, what would, by the way, what's that mean? Uh, well, I mean, you know, there's the joke about the sort of Obama anger translator. I mean, he has to do it all the time. I mean, the amount of disrespect that's thrown at him, the amount of um, uh, vitriol, uh, he's had to rise above it. That's that's what uh, that's the way he's managed to be president of the United States. Uh, but how, twice. Do you, how do you you've obviously done it. How do you do it? Um, I think there has to be to be a. Um, to be a person of color in a white dominant society, um, you learn how to, at least I've learned, how to have empathy first. 
Um, Gary's question was extraordinary. It's different when someone's racist to me in a line at the store. You know, um, he was saying, I'm prejudiced and I need to change. It comes back to this idea of is racism and prejudice something that is an individual evil? Or is it something that is baked into the fabric of this country and that is communicated in subtle messages every single day in our media? And if we believe, as most racial justice advocates and academics do, that it's the latter, that it's not just a story of sort of evil sinners and good people, but rather about a system that was set up in this country to communicate a belief in a hierarchy of human value, then is it any surprise that people would absorb that belief? Now, I'm not saying that that takes every, takes the blame away from everyone, but it does mean that when someone identifies and is willing to admit that, yeah, they've absorbed a bunch of pretty racist stereotypes about our fellow Americans, should we answer that call? I think we have to. I think we all have to. I think one of the big mistakes of the way that this country has, this culture has shifted over the course of my lifetime, sort of once the the voices of the civil rights movement faded, was that we stopped talking about race and admitting that, in fact, prejudice is far, far, far more common than we want to acknowledge. How many times have you been with Gary? Uh, I've talked to Gary on the phone, I don't know, probably a dozen times. I've met with him in person now three times. And what's the future of the Gary-Heather relationship? You know, I don't know. Um, he is on this incredible journey that I'm just sort of from time to time signposting for him. Um, he created this system all on his own where he forced himself to interact with uh, people of color that he normally would not have. Um, he started in the, you know, kind of waiting room at the VA where, you know, a black man sat next to him and he sort of created a little system for himself where he thought, okay, my assumption about this person on a scale of one to 10, he created a system on a scale of one to 10 is that I'm not going to like them. We're going to have, we would have a bad interaction. I'm kind of afraid of him. I'm anxious. So we'd put him on them on a low on the scale. He'd rate the person a three. And then he forced himself to say, really bad traffic on, you know, I-91 <laughs> or whatever, you know, some kind of opening salvo and get to talk. And then after the interaction, he would rate how he felt about them afterwards. And there was always, you know, a five, six, seven point spread. I mean, that was Gary's system. That's definitely, you know, uh, not something I would have come up with and, and showed him to do. But in some ways, it's disarmingly simple and the basic spirit of it, which is if you've gotten to a point where not only do you consume a lot of stereotypes on television, um, but in your life, you're finding that it's affecting who you feel comfortable sitting next to or talking to, sending your children to school with, and then you work up that ladder, paying taxes to support their education, uh, living near. We've got work to do. I, I want to talk about class because... Mm -hmm. This may be an example. I mean, when you look at your background, yeah. what happened after high school? Mm -hmm. Where'd you I go? went to Yale. What did you do study? American studies. 
And, and then I went to law school at UC Berkeley. And how did all that happen? I mean, that's an expensive ride. Did, did, oh, just debt. <laughs> just, just debt? The good old American uh, system of student loans and debt. Yeah. And why were you interested in, say, going to Yale and then getting a law degree? What, were, what was moving you? Well, I've always wanted to, um, you know, that community I talked about on the south side of Chicago um, where I grew up, there was a sense growing up that, you know, service is the rent you pay for living on the earth, right? I mean, it, everyone had to sort of do something, whether it was work in the public sector or uh, work at a nonprofit. There was, that was just sort of kind of how I grew up. I never really questioned the idea that in some ways making this country better was going to be the work of my life. And where did you start after, right after you went to law school? Where did you go then? So I actually um, started working at Demos right after college, um, about a year after college. Uh, it was an entry-level position in the Economic Opportunity Program. I was 22 years old. Um, the organization had only been around for about a year and a half, two years, and I s got a job because I'd had some jobs during college actually working, uh, doing research for a small public policy organization that worked on issues of low-income families and children. And I was able to get this job um, working on the issue of debt, actually. Uh, at that time, we were working on um, how the issue of how credit card debt and mortgage loans and payday loans had become this sort of plastic safety net for working and middle-class families. This was early on, way before this became kind of a dominant understanding about the economy. And I worked on that issue at Demos for a couple of years and then decided to go to law school. So uh, the reason I bring up class, how much education did Gary have? Uh, you know, I don't, I definitely don't think Gary finished college if he went. Um, and he was in the Navy, so mm -hmm. he must have had interaction with people that don't look like him. Did you ever talk yeah, about that? Yeah, I did talk about that a little bit um, with him in terms of, it, it surprised me actually, I mean, because we think of the military as, uh, you know, actually the most integrated institution in our society. Um, but I think that was a long time ago for him. Uh, and since then, he has, um, you know, in many ways, just sort of lived the life of uh, a working class guy working in um, in the South. I mean, you know, North Carolina has a very diverse kind of political landscape and everything. But, you know, it became clear through our conversations that among his friends, you know, racist jokes and um, and, uh, you know, forwards and stuff like that were just part of the way they communicated and entertained themselves. Tell us about Demos, the organization, how many people work there, how sure. much money do you spend a year? Yeah, sure. So Demos is 16 years old now, um, and we have about 60 staff. We've grown from really a handful of people working on democracy issues and economic issues to now um, 60 folks. We're a $10 million a year organization. I became president three years ago. Uh, took over from uh, Miles Rappaport, who went on to become the national president of Common Cause, a, a democracy advocacy organization. Um, and, you know, when I took over from Miles, Miles is a mid-60s uh, white guy, um, I, in many ways, because I'd sort of grown up with the organization, I was there for a number of years, I went to law school, and then I came back in 2009, um, there wasn't a ton that I wanted to do to change it, but I did want to 
raise the understanding of all of our staff, from the person in accounts payable to the economists and the political science and the lawyers, um, of how race affects us all. And so uh, really the biggest thing I did to sort of transform the organization was to embark on what has now been a three-year racial equity organizational transformation process. The organization is predominantly white. It was uh, much more so when I took over. And so that conversation about race with white people was something that we took on head-on at the organization. What's the most offensive thing a white person can say to you? Can say to me? Yeah. Or has, yeah. you know, I mean, where, yeah. where, where do you see it? And you, all, you say to yourself, ah, oh, there it goes. That's it. It's a signal. You know, I think one of the most, probably the most pernicious lie about uh, people of color. And I say it's the most pernicious because it's actually pervasive and because it's really core to undermining the sense of social solidarity and a shared contract that is, frankly, essential for our country to thrive. But the most pernicious lie is the lie that people of color, black people, immigrants, are in some ways don't want the same things that everybody else wants, that, they're, that we are um, lazy, not intelligent, that any kind of, um, not deserving um, of any kind of, the same kinds of supports that uh, frankly made the white middle class flourish in the middle of the century. It's that idea that, um, for example, we see it in the healthcare debate today, right? I mean, there's so much of this sort of prejudiced undertone in the conversation about um, taking away from uh, Medicare, which is sort of seen by many folks, particularly white folks, as something that kind of white people, older white people have earned and put money aside to give free things to undeserving people who, you know, um, just, yeah, just don't deserve it, basically. And the the communities of color that I grew up among, that I know, are just so seldom in the popular imagination among white people, particularly those who, who frankly watch a lot of conservative media, where there is a very clear racial narrative that it's the stories that are cherry picked are about um, you know, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's Donald Trump's vision of, of black America, right? You have nothing, nothing to lose. There are people, you know, shooting people every day. The families are broken. All of the immigrants who come to this country are rapists and criminals, right? That idea tears at the fabric of the country. How are you supposed to hear that message about, frankly, probably communities that you don't live near, because we're still very segregated, and then say, yeah, I think those kids should have... Uh, health care subsidies. I think that we should raise all of our taxes so that college is debt-free for those community college students. I mean, it's a very slippery slope from a stereotype that is at an individual basis to tearing apart the sense of who we all are as Americans, and it comes back and affects white people too. 
Going back to the video from mm -hmm. our call-in show, uh, it was eight million at one point. Do you mm -hmm. know what the number is now? You know, I haven't looked. Um, so it was eight million before uh, the New York Times op-ed, before the Upworthy video. So I'm, I'm sure it's much more. Now. What's happened to you as a result of this? Anything? Um, I've had, you know, it, it was a rough fall, right? So that was the week I was in North Carolina meeting with Gary the week before the election. And in many ways for me personally and for many other people who, uh, you know, who, who've dedicated their lives to social justice and, uh, and racial justice and economic justice, um, the election of, uh, you know, a billionaire who, um, spouted a lot of, uh, disdain, distrust, and disgust for um, many members of the American community, it was a pretty, it was a pretty rough uh, and continues to be a pretty rough um, proposition. My relationship with Gary, who should be a Trump voter, right? By demographics, uh, he should be a Trump voter, and he's not a Democrat, as he told me when we first met, um, but he didn't vote for Trump. And he has become someone who recognizes his own stereotypes, almost gets a little bit of joy of, of kind of catching them as he thinks them and sort of shifting his consciousness to a more sort of generous idea about who uh, his fellow Americans are. That's given me hope. Now, I'm going to say something that I guarantee you people watching this right now, it's going to affect them. Okay. And you'll know why, and you'll know immediately. Who's the chairman of your board? Oh, I thought you were going to say you're prejudiced. I was so excited we were going to do something no, here. No. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I actually no. do want to say we're all prejudiced, right? We all have um, hold stereotypes and beliefs that um, about, you know, for some people it may be about, you know, Muslims. For some people, it may be about immigrants. For some people, it may be about women. For some people, it may be about obese people. Um, Do you know why I ask you this question? Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean, I mean to dodge. Minute, no, the, well, I, mean, it's not, I don't yeah. want to make a big deal out of it, but when you tell us who the chairman, yeah. people listening will go one way or the other. Amelia Warren Tiagi, who is the daughter and um, collaborator on a number of books uh, with Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts. It's a, her daughter? Yeah, it's her daughter. Oh, sorry, did I not say that? No. Yeah, so it's her daughter and the collaborator. Um, so not only is it her daughter, but they actually have worked together on a number of books, including The Two Income Trap, which is how I, I and Dima sort of first got to know Elizabeth Warren when she was a professor. Um, this argument that we were making about debt, about credit card debt and how the rules had changed and it was drowning working families in debt um, was one that she and Amelia were making um, back in the early 2000s. And so that's why we got to know each other. Um, and I've always been a fan of Senator Warren. Um, and actually, Senator Warren and I have had a number of conversations about race, about how you talk about the sort of economic populism that she delivers so compellingly and also um, tell that missing piece of the story of how race has been used as the weapon in the class war to drive people who have common class interests apart. If uh, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, called you and said, I'd like to meet with you, would you? Oh, that is so interesting. Um, before, when I was in North Carolina um, and I met with uh, Melissa Harris-Perry, we had an interview. It was why I went down to North Carolina. She said, if Hillary Clinton calls, will you go work for the White House? And I said, no, I really 
love what I'm doing at Demos. And then she said, which sounded like, seemed like a shocker, if Donald Trump calls and says, I want you to lead my kind of racial reconciliation, would you do it? Now, I don't know, in your hypotheticals, he just, I don't know why he's calling me. Well, um, actually, I'll tell you why. what I want you to get to. He's calling you because he wants you to come to the Oval Office by yourself. He will have nobody there, and you get to sit with him. No drama, no mm-hmm. cameras, no anything. And he's going to say, now tell me, tell me why it is the black folks dislike me so much, and what can I do about it? You know, I would have a lot to say to Donald Trump about the story he holds in his mind about people of color in this country and how dangerous it is for our demos, for our sense of being a whole people that are together in one country. I'd have a lot to say to Donald Trump, and I'd be happy to say it. So what, what, give us an idea. I mean, you look him in the eye, you're going to tell him things. And first of all, let's just assume he's going to say, look, I'm not prejudiced. Yeah. He's going to say that. And he says, look, this, I can't say this out loud, but this was all part of the act for getting elected. (laughs) And I would tell him that um, he has created lasting damage because his incredible megaphone to that he has used to reify some of the worst stereotypes about immigrants, about Muslims, about women, about people with disabilities, about African-Americans. How deep is it? It's so damaging. And here's why. Because he was able to connect the thing that is actually one of the most significant crises of our time, the decline in living standards, particularly among people without a college degree, the gulf in uh, wealth and inequality in this country, the fact that you can't work your way out of poverty today. He was able to connect that to scapegoating people of color. And that, I mean, particularly for those of us who've dedicated our whole lives to trying to call the country's attention and call the elite's attention to what has happened to the working and middle class in this country, Making the solution to that, A, voting for someone who says, you know, I alone can fix it, as opposed to saying it's actually about collective action, Um, right? We actually made the middle class in this country and transformed terrible, dangerous factory jobs into good jobs through collective action and collective bargaining, which he is opposed to. Um, And B, the fact that he made tied the concern about the decline of good jobs in America to violence, encouraging scapegoating, anti-democratic litmus tests for coming into the country uh, based on religion is devastating. And it's going to last much longer than the Donald Trump presidency. One of the questions that I've heard conservatives ask this a lot is that why are most black folks so anti a black person who is a conservative? I mean, the anti Clarence Thomas, Uh Ben Carson, you know, they they don't speak for me and they just it's a big negative on them. And. Uh, well, not- yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, in some ways, I feel like it's similar to white folks who are opposed to Elizabeth Warren. It's about the politics, right? I mean, I wish that the conservative ideology wasn't so 
easy to um, sort of create a division among racial lines, right? I mean, race has been so central, racism has been so central to the um, the policy solutions and the story about the country that so many conservatives have told. It's really hard when you get so when you get a an African American or a Latina or any person of color who gets into political uh, life and wants to gut the enforcement of civil rights wants to uh, abolish the minimum wage, wants to uh, bust unions, which are even more actually uh, uh, a ticket to the middle class for for working black folks uh, and Latinos because the job discrimination is so strong outside of a union. It's not about race. It's about the policies and the ideas and what they have done and would do to the communities of color. All right. Bill O'Reilly talked Mm. about race on his show. you see, it was December 20th, 2016, and it's, it was about uh, white privilege. But I want you to hear it okay. and then react to it. Very few commentators will tell you that the heart of liberalism in America today is based on race. It permeates almost every issue. That white men have set up a system of oppression. That system must be destroyed. Bernie Sanders peddled that. Some extent, Hillary Clinton did. And the liberal media tries to sell that all day long. So-called white privilege, bad. Diversity, good. Yes. <laughs> um, sure, unearned privilege based on race is bad and diversity is good. I think that diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, is the source of American exceptionalism. I mean, the fact that we are a country that where, you know, we were not sort of descendant from one uh, kind of ethnic group as European countries were, where our immigration laws um, have created a place where there is someone here in the United States with ties to every single community in the globe is the thing that makes us exceptional and extraordinary. Yes, diversity is good. And yes, privilege that is based on skin color is not democratic, it's not egalitarian, and yes, it has been baked into the fabric of our country. Is there white prejudice? Is there white privilege? I mean, is there are most whites uh, white supremacists i mean from from the oh, black those are two very different questions oh, i know yeah. they are but i mean <laughs> um, yeah. i mean here's another way of asking mm-hmm. you what do black people say about white people when we're not around oh that's a good question um so i mean like <laughs> trying to like think of an actual example instead of i mean there's um, got to be things you say oh sure that, i mean listen our country it's it's so funny. We have this very strange um, uh, kind of double consciousness in this country, where we we admit usually you know on January fifteenth on Martin Luther King Day that in fact yes our country was uh, legally racially segregated up until relatively recently, but the footage is black and white, um, and yet we really don't want to actually admit that that has some effect on all of our systems and that those beliefs 
which were predominant. And again, it really is about the beliefs, right? There's this idea that sort of um, white people who were racist before the civil rights movement, maybe they were just bad people. But we know that's not actually true, right? I mean, we know that the vast majority of white Americans tolerated a system of apartheid in our country. And does that mean that they were evil and would literally like kill a black person before they would sit next to them? Obviously not. And so if that's the truth, then how can we help but understand that the just sort of tacit beliefs about, and they have different justifications now, right? It may not be biology. It may be, in fact, that just, you know, black culture is inferior. And of course, there are some good black people, right? And I really want to make sure that we don't fall into that trap. And it was very easy to do so when you had an African-American family in the White House. And it's not all black people. It's just the culture of so many and too many black people. Um, I want to go back to some more video to show you. This is from April 30th, 2016 at the White House Correspondents Dinner, Larry Wilmore and the president (laughs) sitting there on the dais and explain. Well, I'll ask you more when you hear what Larry Wilmore says. To live in your time, Mr. President, when a black man can lead the entire free world. Words alone do me no justice. Um, so, Mr. President, if I'm going to keep it 100, yo, Barry, you did it, my nigga. <laughs> did it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good night. I'll just add to this. I recently saw the movie Fences, and uh, mm. the N-word is used a tremendous amount among mm-hmm. the black folks in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then, that, But I just wanted to go back to that. What What... Should white people react to this, the use? Would black folks use it bad Mm -hmm. when white people use it really bad? I mean, good when black folks use it among themselves. So um, one of the difficulties of understanding race relations is the need to understand that there's a difference between um, equality and equity. That different communities have different, are situated differently. Um, So the idea that saying, and there's a power differential uh, among the different communities in this country. Um, So I personally don't use that word. My family grew up, we didn't use that word. But at the same time, I know that a lot of people have defended it because it's reclaiming a word that among when used by white people, is used with hate, derision, disrespect. And when used by people of color, the intent, as you could tell by Larry Wilmore saying it to the president, was not hate, derision, and disrespect. So what is the meaning behind the words? What is the intent of the words? It's obviously very different. So that kind of thinking, the understanding that if you're going to be in a society that has a lot of different communities, and frankly, that has um, communities that are not, um, that 
have different power differentials where they're group dynamics, right? You and I may not have a massive power differential, except for the fact that you're the one asking the questions and I'm answering them. But our groups as a young African-American woman, as an older white man, there are power, older, older, (laughs) I didn't say old. (laughs) Um, There are power differentials there, right? Um, In the sense that, you know, if you look at the Senate- You're the one with the law degree from UC Berkeley. Yes, and that's that. I'm so glad you said that because there will always be exceptions, right? In the individual case, but you look at the median wealth of a man of your uh, of a white man. It is white households have ten times the typical wealth of an African American household. That's actually still the case when it comes to uh, white and black families of equal education, um, because of the history of. racial segregation and then predatory lending and wealth stripping. And so the I, the thing that's challenging, but actually not so challenging, and Gary has been able to really kind of understand it and make it a part of the way he now sees the world, is that there are group dynamics. You and I are incredibly idiosyncratic individual people with our little, you know, foibles and who we are as individual people with our stories. But as groups in this country, if you lay all white men, African-American women, Latina women, etc., out and look at the way that they have access to power, who's represented in the Senate and the Congress, 90% of the elected officials in this country are still white. Two thirds are white men. If you look at the difference in wealth and income, the ability to walk into a room and get a job and a callback, if you have a African-American sounding name but no criminal record, you are less likely to get a callback for a job than if you are a white person who has a criminal record. So does that mean that I can't get a job or that any white person will always be able to get a job? No, but it does mean that these group dynamics still exist and we have to acknowledge them. Your parents alive? Yes, thank goodness. What do they think of your success? Um, They're proud of me. Uh, My mother actually um, really has dedicated her life and career to the project of racial healing, so she is particularly proud of me. Still live in Chicago? Uh, She lives in uh, Prince George's County outside of Maryland. You know, my grandfather is not still alive, and he was a a Chicago police officer. was very close to Harold Washington and and very just involved in the former community. mayor of Chicago. Yes, former first black mayor of Chicago. Um, I wish he were still alive, and I think he would. Uh, he would have a lot to say Where's about this moment. Uh, my dad is in Sacramento. Yeah. So, where did you meet your husband? I met my husband in high school. <laughs> I met my husband in high school. And his name is. His name is Cosm Shepard. He's uh, he's actually a perfectly American story. His mother was a foreign exchange student from Pakistan in the 1960s and met her husband, my my husband's father, um, in school. And they had this sort of incredibly unlikely love story. He was a white American from Denver. She was a Pakistani woman from Lahore in Karachi. And um, so he grew up in this interfaith, intercultural family. And now so you have a, 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 a mixed marriage, yeah. that's what they call it. And any any of your own black folks resent that? I hear people talking about that. They don't want 
whites to marry blacks and all that. What what does it look like from the black community? Uh, I mean, I think there are um, resistance. There's resistance to um, you know there are prejudices in every community, right? Um, I would just say that the prejudice in the white community is backed up often by the force of law and the economy, right? So that's why it matters more to the fate of black children that white people are prejudiced than it may that, you know, a black woman is prejudiced against uh, against white people. So, um, but I will say that I, fortunately, you know, my my marriage has been embraced very much by my community and by his community. So those who may have turned in late, Gary is who again? Gary is a, uh, uh, as he said, I'm a white man and I'm prejudiced. That's how he opened up his call on C-SPAN. He's from, um, he lives in rural North Carolina. Um, Has he changed since that call with you? Tremendously. I mean, he... He has done, he, first of all, just on a personal level, you know, this is someone who, you know, spent most of his time watching TV and didn't have that many interactions with people. Um, and he's really pushed himself to interact with people of different races. Um, he's, you know, been flown to D.C. and to New York to meet with me. And he's been interviewed for The New Yorker magazine and on CNN last week. Um, but more importantly, He's actually just taken it on himself to learn about the truth about race and racism in this country. Here's a little bit from that CNN, and you were, and actually the fellow interviewing you, I believe, is on your board. Van Jones, yeah. Van Jones, okay, yeah. let's watch. Just thirty seconds. Yeah. How have your friends been reacting? Um, I think they're like a little curious. I think they're uh, wondering what I'm, you know, what have I got myself into? You know, I just have a few friends I can count on my hand, actually. And I don't make a big thing about it. I, you know, I told him I was, you know, doing this thing, and then I had this new friend here who kind of mentors me, and uh, it, it wasn't like a long time ago. But you know, I was uh, having different kind of conversations with them. Is, is there more to do on the part of Demos and you with this story? I mean, are you going to take it anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I've been, uh, for a long time, actually for about a year now, I've been um, wanting to write a book um, and um, started working on the book proposal before that fateful call with Gary. And the um, idea of the book is to really catalog the different ways that racism uh, is actually bad for white people, too. You're going to write it for whites or blacks? I'm going to write it for white people white and people. for people of color who are trying to find common cause with them. Um, Gary was in a lot of pain. Um, the degree of anxiety and fear that he had, coupled with the sense of moral guilt. Um, one of the things that really shook him this year was uh, the the murder um, in Charleston, Dylan Roof's uh, murder of the innocent people in um, Mother Emanuel Church, that really shook him. Um, and he lives in the South, and he had never sort of noticed all the Confederate flags everywhere, but he started to notice it. And then he thought about his own, you know, prejudiced views and racist jokes he told. And he said, you know, if I don't do something about this, I'm going to have a stroke. I mean, it really caused him pain. 
I don't think that any of us as Americans get away scot-free with racism still being the cancer that it is in our society. Heather McGee, you're president of the Demos organization. Yeah. And if people want to contact Demos and get on your website, yes. what's the address? www.demos.org. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much. free transcripts, or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qa.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.